Amen. Lord, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, that, that you are a God who did and does think about us, that we're always on your mind. We're not worthy of it, but the fact that you, you love us, that you created us, that you desire to have intimate fellowship with us. What a great God you are. We're so blessed. Lord, I just pray right now as we go to your word that you would minister to every heart that is here. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Santa Cruz. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we'll be happy to either loan you one or give you one if you need it. Feel free to take it home with you. All right. Well, I think Chris mentioned it during announcements. I'm going to be leaving for India right after the service. I'd really appreciate your prayer. Um, just uh, what a great opportunity it is to go over and minister to five to 600 pastors who are getting ready to go out and plant churches and to teach them how to study and teach the Bible. They don't have Bible software like we do. They don't have Strong's Concordances and Greek and Hebrew lexicons and things like that. And in some ways, that can be a blessing because what they have is the Bible. And so what I'm, I get the privilege of going over there and teaching them how to study the Bible and teach the Bible using only their Bible. And I would, my prayer would be, if, if you will pray for me, pray for my health, because some of you may not know this, I have major stomach problems, and when I'm teaching 14 hours a day, and, and it's, you know, 100 degrees and things like that, I would just covet your prayer. You guys prayed for me last year, my stomach never felt better in my life than the two weeks I was in India eating curry every day. I can't even stand it, right? So I know it was the Lord, okay? But I, would, I just really would appreciate your prayer, and just pray for the guys over there, that God would just really minister to them. And what a privilege it is. And you know what? As you pray, you share in the blessing of what, you know, you guys are sending me. I'm going representing Calvary Santa Cruz. It's the Lord. You know what? Most of you know, we, we, I think we represent somewhere around 75 or 80 missionaries that we support as a church between the church itself and you guys as individuals. And it's the, the missions group that we're the, the most behind. They've planted over 14,000 churches in India. It's a great group. So be praying for Gospel for Asia and the trip this week. I would really appreciate it. Well, that being said, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. And by way of a brief review, we know that the first six chapters, Paul was addressing the church in Corinth, and he was addressing the, the fact that they had fallen away from God. He got a letter from the house of Chloe that this church that had started off well, that had begun and it was very gifted, as it says in the chapter 1, they were a very gifted people, spiritually gifted, walking strong with the Lord, but living in Corinth, that was a godless city, before long they started to become like the world around them. And as we've talked about over the past few weeks, we know that they were very gifted, but at the same time, bad company corrupts good morals. And he spoke to them about the compromise that had come into the church and told them they were to be set apart. He talked to them about the fact that though there was pagan idol worship around them, that it was only the cross of Christ that could save them. And, and also, the, the thing that was real popular in, in Corinth, along with it being a godless city filled with pagan idol worship, was they were heavy duty into the Greek philosophers. And they loved philosophical discussion. And he told them that philosophy of men is nothing, that the true source of wisdom is the Holy Spirit. He talked to them about the immorality that was creeping into the church and how they were to react to sin. He talked to them about how they were to deal with disputes with their brothers, not to take them before men, but to bring them before the church. And so we go through the first six chapters seeing him address the, the, the things he had heard from Chloe. And now we got to chapter 7, 
Now there's questions that the church had actually written to their former pastor, asking him questions about things that were going on in their church, saying, we need some wisdom, we need some direction. And the first thing that they discussed was marriage. And I want to encourage you to get the marriage tape, whether you're married, divorced, or single, that covers everybody, right? If you, he, that's what he addressed, and he addressed what, a, what you should look for in a godly spouse, and what a godly marriage ought to look like. And he told them that, you know, they, they were saying, hey, maybe we should just all get divorced, because there's so much immorality around us, that way we can focus on serving God, and instead of being distracted by being married, he said, no, you stay as you are. If you're married, be faithful in your marriage and be content in your marriage. And if you're single, be faithful as a single person and be content being single. We then looked at at chapter 8 last week. And we're going to kind of pick up with that same theme. And what we saw last week was liberty, love, and legalism. And we talked about the fact that in chapter 8, he addressed yet another question. And this question was, should they eat meat that had been offered to idols? Remember that most of the people that had been converted to Christianity would have been previously idol worshipers. And so for them, that was their old way of life. And there was the fact that when, when people came and offered things to idols, a portion of it was given to the priest, a third of it. And the priest couldn't eat all, of the, all this food, these pagan priests. So what they would do is they would take a, a good amount of what they had sacrificed and they would sell it in a market. And because it was meat offered to idols, it was sold for a lot cheaper than the rest of the other meat. Now some of the Christians said, hey, that's just meat offered to a a dead block of wood anyway, I don't care, I mean it's not real, so I'm going to go get me some of that cheap meat down there, right? And so they'd go down and get the the grub that was cheap and go buy it, right? I could buy more that way. Well others who came from idol worship saw it and they were stumbled and they said, now wait a minute. That stuff was offered and sacrificed to idols, and you're paying money that's going into the coffers of the pagans. You shouldn't do that. And we saw last week that Paul addressed this issue of liberty. While we have freedom in Christ, it doesn't mean that we have freedom to do whatever we want if it's going to stumble our brother. As Christians, we don't think of only ourselves. We think of how our our actions impact others. And some of the things we talked about last week, just real briefly, because For us, we don't think about, well, you know, hey, we're not going to buy any meat offered to an idol necessarily, so how does that apply to us? Well, today, it would be more along the lines of things like, should a Christian have a TV in their home? Should a Christian go to movies? Should a Christian have a Christmas tree? Should a Christian ever drink alcohol? Should we allow our kids to go to public school? What day of the week should we meet on? You know, should we own a big house or an expensive car? You know, things that will stumble somebody. Now, one, again... Everything that we do, we ought to do to honor God. And our heart ought to be, Lord, my life is not about my personal comfort, but about bringing glory and honor to your name. Now, is it wrong for us to be comfortable? No. He wants us to have life and life more abundant. But the abundance of our life doesn't come in the things that we possess, but in our relationship with Almighty God. The key is that we are not to be divided over non-essentials. We talked about this last week. Maybe you feel like you have freedom to have a glass of wine with dinner. And certainly the Bible does not forbid that. Now I've told you last week that I believe it forbids it for me as a pastor. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that a pastor or an elder is not given to wine. Period. So I don't drink alcohol ever. Period. Now, 
Some of you may feel like, well, with dinner I have a glass of wine, and I'm not condemning you for that. I believe that you have liberty to have a glass of wine with your dinner. You're never to be drunk. Be not drunk with wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. You know what? I don't need drugs or alcohol because I got Jesus. Amen? I don't need the imitation high. I got the real thing. Amen? And so the reality is, though, that you can, but my encouragement to you would be, be careful if you're going out to dinner somewhere and you're sitting across the table with your wife and maybe there's people at work you're ministering to or new believers in your neighborhood or people from this church that struggle with alcohol and, and then you're sitting at the table and you're drinking alcohol and then it may stumble that weaker brother who looks and sees it and says, well, there's somebody that I look up to in their walk spiritually. They've been walking with the Lord longer than I have and if they have that freedom, then maybe it's okay for me to do that. And again, whatever it might be, it, it, whether it's alcohol or the kind of car you drive or, or how you dress or whatever it might be, we should do everything in a way that would honor God. And may we not stumble our brother over our food or over what we drink. Amen? And the last verse of the last chapter, Paul says, in verse, chapter 8, verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He said, you know what? There's nothing this world has to offer that is worth me making me stumble somebody in their walk with God. Paul had an eternal perspective, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is having a perspective focused on God. We're not to destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Jesus died for them. We can certainly not eat steak for them. Amen? We can certainly turn away from the physical things of the world so that we do not stumble our brothers. So we come to chapter 9 this morning, and in this morning's chapter, we're going to see Paul's practical application of chapter 8. Because Paul was not just a man that, says, that said, do what I say, he was a man that said, do what I do. He said, watch me, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's, and, he, and when people looked at him, they could see Christ in him. And so in this chapter, he's going to continue what we talked about last week about liberty and legalism and love and not stumbling your brother, but now he's going to give a very clear example of that from his own life. Paul's an apostle. He's sent out by God to minister the truth of God's word. And you know what? He had many rights that were given to him as an apostle. And we're going to talk about one of those this morning. And what he's going to say is, you know what? I have a right to be supported by the people to be in full-time ministry but you know what? If it's going to stumble one person, I'm not going to do it. I'll make tents the rest of my life if that's what I have to do. And we're going to see, again, his heart that is so focused on eternity that he doesn't worry about his own comfort and his own well-being at any point. Again, we too need to get our eyes off of ourselves. You know what? Can I tell you the truth? I'm always on my mind. I'm always thinking about me. How about you, right? And we think everybody else is thinking about us, but they're not. They're thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about you, right? I mean, we come to church, we think, man, if I, you know, my hair, everybody's thinking about, nobody, in it, you're thinking about yourself, and nobody else has any clue what you're wearing today, right? I mean, the reality is that we're always focused on ourselves. But God's desire would be that we would stop being focused on us and be so in love with the Lord and so desiring that we would not stumble another over something that is temporal. So I titled the message this morning, Running the Race to Win. And how we run will be based on where we think the finish line is. If you think the finish line is here and now and it's on this earth, then you're going to passionately pursue wealth, possessions, prestige, personal comfort. You know, eventually you'll be getting plastic surgery and doing everything you can to save this dead, dying body, right? 
You do everything you can to keep this thing looking good because you think the finish line is here and upon this earth. But, unlike what the bumper sticker says, it's not true that he who dies with the most toys wins. He who dies with the most toys is dead. Amen? And the reality is that if we think this is the finish line, that that can be your credo. But if our goal is heaven, if our finish line is the throne of grace, the physical things of this world will have little value to us. It will only be a means to an end, not the end itself. Our love will be for people, our passion for lost souls, and we will de not, not demand our liberties and freedoms at the cost of stumbling others. So we're going to talk about running the race to win, but the real key is where's the finish line for you? What is the passion of your life? When you wake up in the morning, what are you thinking about? When Paul woke up, he thought about lost souls. When Paul woke up, he thought about, Lord, how do you want to use me today? Lord, guide and lead and direct my life. You know, God put a, a, a habit on my heart that I started many years ago, and, and, and you know what, it's just something that God did with me. And it, I was teaching through 1 Samuel probably 12, 14 years ago as a youth pastor, and there's a part in that chapter where Samuel is woken up by the Lord, and he thinks it's Eli. And he keeps going into Eli, because he hears his name, Samuel. And he runs in, and says, Eli, did you call me? And Eli says, no, I didn't call you. And finally, the third time, he tells him, you know, that's the Lord. Next time when He calls you, just say, yes, Lord. And so God put on my heart that every morning when I wake up before my feet hit the ground, I just put my hand in the air and I say, yes, Lord. Because I want to begin my day with my thoughts, my passion, and my heart focused on Him. You know, to start my day focused on Him, to seek Him above all else. And I'll tell you what, when you begin your day with Him, I'll tell you, it keeps your focus and your passion away from the things that can stumble you. And so Paul's heart was like that. And his finish line was not in this world, his finish line was in heaven. So this morning we're going to see Paul give a clear teaching that, that he and all who are called by God to preach the gospel are to be provided for materially by those who they minister to spiritually. If, you've been, if you were coming on Wednesday nights, so clear that those who God calls to minister and bless you spiritually, we are called to minister to them physically, materially, going back to the priest and others. As I go and a pastor's ministering to me or somebody's ministering to me on the radio, whatever it might be, those who minister to me or spiritually, I should be reaching out and ministering to them physically. We're then going to see that we're free from all men, that he's free from all men, but he willingly enslaved himself. So he's going to say first and foremost that, that, that those who teach the word should be fed from it. And then he's going to say that he has willingly laid himself down to be a slave to all men. And then we're going to talk about running the race to win it. So let's begin in verse 1. As Paul lays down his liberty, that others would not be stumbled. And I love Paul's heart. Great example for all of us. So now he's speaking to them. He just talked to them about the difference between liberty and legalism. And now he begins to make a case for himself. Verse 1. Am I not an apostle? What is an apostle? An apostle is one sent by God. And to be an apostle in the day of Paul, in the days of Paul, something significant had to happen. You had to literally be sent by Jesus Christ in person. Now, most of you know Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles. But he was, I believe, the 12th apostle that replaced Judas, unlike Matthias who they put into that position and you never hear his name again anywhere in the Bible. I think they blew it, all right? I think Paul was the one that God was putting in that spot 
And, and how did Paul get called into ministry? He was on the road to Damascus, and who showed up? Jesus did. And I believe it wasn't just a vision or a dream, but I believe Jesus literally appeared to him, knocked him off his high horse, right? He fell to the ground, and he began to serve God. He was blinded, he had to be taught, and he became, I believe, the 12th apostle at that moment. Now, he says, I'm an apostle. I'm one sent with a message from God. Am I not an apostle? This is extremely obvious. It should be to all the church in Corinth because he was the pastor that started that church. He says, am I not one sent by God, an ambassador of the gospel? In Ephesians 2, it says the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. So it says, am I not an apostle? And then he says, am I not free? Paul was under the authority of no man. He was submitted to Christ alone. And he had liberty in Christ. So he's an apostle, and he has total freedom. Now he's making a case, and I want you to pay attention to this, because he's going to make a case that he should be supported to do the ministry that he's doing. But once he makes the case that he should be supported, he's going to tell them that he's not going to be. And why is he doing this? Because he's giving them an example about not eating meat if it's going to stumble your brother. Now he's going to say, look, I have liberty and I have the right and the authority to be supported by the church, but my concern is that it might stumble even one person, so I'm just not going to do it. So he says, I'm free. I'm submitted to Christ. Verse, the rest of the verse. I have, not, have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? And again, he saw him face to face. It's a qualification for being an elder according to Acts chapter 1 verses 21 and 22. You must have seen the resurrected Savior. And that's exactly what he had done. And again, that leaves a lot of folks out. You're writing this letter to the people in Corinth. How many of them had seen a risen Jesus? A resurrected Christ? Not too many probably. And so he's saying, I'm an apostle. I'm free. I've seen Jesus face to face. That's who I am. I'm called by God. I'm submitted to Him. And again, some Corinthians were questioning Paul's authority, and I'll tell you why in a minute. And Paul's giving them credentials, having both seen and talked to Christ. He was saved, he was called, he was sent, and it was the Lord who had done it. Verse, rest of the verse. Are you not my work in the Lord? So he's saying, look, let me prove to you that I'm a man sent by God. I'm an apostle, which means sent one. The closest thing we would have to an apostle today would be a missionary. Somebody sent out with a specific purpose. And that's what Paul was. He said, I'm an apostle. He said, I've seen Jesus. I'm free. And then he says, are you not my work in the Lord? He reminds them that they are the fruit and the proof of the fact that God's hand is upon him. The ultimate proof of calling is fruitfulness in ministry. The work of God among the Corinthian Christians in transforming their lives. Remember, he said earlier that once you guys were homosexuals, sodomites, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, but now, since you met Jesus, your lives have been changed. And Paul lets them know, I'm an apostle. I'm free. I saw Jesus face to face. He sent me to you. And the fruit of the ministry is proof of God's calling on my life. Again, some were questioning whether or not Paul was truly an apostle. Let me tell you why they were questioning. The same reason why people question today. When Paul writes a letter to them and tells them what they're doing is sin, they didn't like it. 
Do you know there are whole denominations out there today that want to take all of Paul's epistles right out of the Bible? Let's just rip those pages out. Why? Because he says homosexuality is wrong, and, and we know it's not, so he must be, so let's just rip those pages out. And they don't like what Paul says, so they want to remove the pages out of the Bible. And the same is happening here, that he's writing this letter to them, and they don't want to hear it, so they start to question whether or not he's an apostle. You know what happens today? We don't question whether or not people are apostles. They question whether or not this is the Bible. Whether or not this is the living, breathing Word of God. Whether or not this book is without error. Can I tell you something? If this book has errors in it, we might as well just all go home right now. Amen? But can I tell you right now, this book is perfect, because God wrote it, amen? And you know, it broke my heart, this pastor came by our office this week, and I started talking to him, and he's got a little church here in town, and it, it's good that it's little after I talked to him, it needs to be non-existent, okay? But what he started telling me was, I said, do you ever go to the EMF meeting, start telling about our church, what God was doing, I asked him how the church was doing, he said, we're really struggling. And then he went on to tell me that they're really liberal and they don't really take the Bible literally. And, you know, they believe in many paths to God. And that's not, I don't, why do you have, I don't get it. Why do you call yourselves a Christian church if you think Buddha is good enough? I don't get it. I just don't, I can't even grasp that. That makes no sense to me. Just put horns on the wall, call the Elks Club and be done with it because it's not a church, Right? Because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. Amen? He's the only path. He's the only truth. He's the only way. He's the only hope for all of mankind. But people don't like what the Bible says, so instead of changing their lives, they want to change the Bible. And the same is happening here. Paul's written this letter, and they don't like it. And they start to say, well, maybe you're, you know, I don't, I'm not sure you're an apostle. Maybe you're just not even called. Now he's writing, look, I'm an apostle. I saw Jesus face to face. You guys are fruit of my ministry. I'm free to do what God has called me to do. And he is presenting his credentials before them. You know how you know when someone is a shepherd? The sheep follow. That's how you know. And again, I'm not picking on anybody, but if someone's been pastoring a church for 22 years and they got seven people, that's not a shepherd. Because a health, healthy sheep will beget healthy sheep. Amen? Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen in six months or a year. You know, sometimes that ground's really hard. It was hard for us when we started. But the reality is that over time, healthy sheep will beget healthy sheep. Churches will grow if they're healthy. And the reality is, if it's not growing, then God's hand's not on it because God is faithful to His Word. Amen? And He does transform lives. And so we see here that they're challenging Him, and He's saying, look at the fruit. This entire church that's in Corinth originated when God sent me into that wicked city and I preached the gospel to you guys and a number of you were saved and you were on fire for God, but now the idol worship around you is starting to impact you and you're starting to become like the world. And now I write you a letter of correction and you're like, I'm not so sure you're an apostle because I don't like the fact that you're getting, in my, you know, you're getting into my kitchen and telling me what I need to be doing around here, right? I don't like that. I want to I serve God on my own agenda, Right? I got my own way. Me and God got our special understanding. No, no, you don't. Yeah, yeah I, got, and I, I had a guy tell me that one time. I, I know I've told you guys this before. A guy said, yeah, me and Jesus, we got a special understanding. What, you don't believe in him and he's going to judge you? Is that the understanding you have? Because if you believe in other gods, you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. You can't have Jesus plus five or six other things. And in Santa Cruz, it's really prevalent, isn't it? It's really prevalent to have 
all the gods. Oh, we're just really open-minded. By the way, that to me, that's a curse word, right? Because open-minded just means ignorant. It just means ignorant to the truth. It just means you haven't studied the word of God to understand the truth. Because Jesus Christ was not open-minded. Amen? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and life, and that's it. He didn't say there's 18 other plans. Whatever works for you. Whatever gives you that warming, burning in your bosom, go for it. No, that's not what he said. What he said is he is the only way. And Paul's a chosen vessel that Christ had ministered to them through. Verse 2, if I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The Corinthian church had first-hand knowledge of his calling, and they were the seal, they were the stamp. They were the certification that God's hand was upon Paul because they were the fruit of his ministry. And again, they challenged his word because they didn't like what he had told them. They didn't want their behavior condemned. Verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. So his word, he says, my defense to you, and he's going to talk now about the fact that he rightfully should be supported by the church. The word, therefore, defense is apologia, where we get the word apologetics. Apologetics doesn't mean apologizing for your faith, right? Apologetics means defending the faith. We have an apologetics class going on in the Bible college right now that Pastor Joe's teaching. He says, my defense, my apologia, is the, and, and the way that you can examine me are both legal words taken from Roman court, and Paul's going to defend himself as if, as if he's on trial, being condemned by the very people he had led to the Lord. You know, sometimes you're going to share Jesus with somebody, and you're going to disciple them and minister to them, and then over time they're going to turn their back, and they're not going to like what you have to say anymore. And this is what's happening to Paul. He's being attacked by the very church that he had helped to plant. And he's going to tell them the rights that he has to be ministered to by them as a church. Verse 4, do we have no right to eat and drink? Paul's saying those of us, apostles, pastors, etc., do we have the right to basic necessities? Do we have the right to have food to eat and water to drink? Do we have that basic right? And he's asking the question of the Corinthian church. Verse 5, do we have the right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Do I have the right not only that to be provided for my basic needs, but also for the needs of my family? Does the pastor have that right? Does the apostle have that right? The answer is absolutely. Why? Because as he ministers to them spiritually, they are to minister to him physically. And He's just saying the basic needs. Now, I want to make it really clear. We're going to see this more as we move on. But that doesn't mean that anybody should ever be in the ministry for money. Amen? The most abused thing I see on television today is these guys who plant your seed. And you, know, it's always, and you notice how they always want the seed planted in their garden. You ever notice that? Send us $1,000 of seed offering. And these guys are living in $20 million houses and wearing a, you know, a, a suit that costs more than my car. And you, know, you see these guys, and, and it just breaks your heart because you can tell where their motives are. And we should provide for those in the ministry, but we should provide their needs, not their wants. Amen? They should, 
You know, Pastor Chuck teaches us as Calvary pastors, guys, live simply. Live simply. People should be able to look at your lifestyle and they should not even think for a minute that you have any monetary motive in being a pastor. They should never even think it for a second. And you know what? That's my heart. Now, our assistant pastors, I set their salaries, and you know what I do? I do not want my assistant pastors who work 70 hours a week to have to go out on Saturday and work a part-time job so their kids can have mac and cheese. That should not be happening. Amen? If they're laboring in the Word to minister to us, then we need to provide for them. Again, not that they live in a million-dollar house on the hill or anything like that, but that they have their needs cared for. And that's my heart for our, the assistant pastors in this church is that they be blessed. And you know what? I grew up in a home where my parents often were abused by the churches that my dad pastored. We, my dad pastored denominational churches, and I remember many times where my mom would be weeping in the kitchen because we ran out of food. And we're not getting paid for seven more days. And they, te- they treat you like a hireling. You know what I mean? And, 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 and just the, the way that they treat pastors sometimes. And you know what? We're not going to do that here. I look at our pastors, and I'm so blessed by their hearts and their willingness to serve, and I do not want them going without food or the basic necessities that they need Because if they are, they're going to be distracted and unable to minister to you guys. Amen? And so that's my heart. And and again, I just remember so many times, even being embittered as a little boy, thinking, that's just not right. My dad works forever. My dad's always working to minister to people, and we can't even buy food. I remember them telling me I couldn't play Little League because we didn't have any money. Now, that shouldn't happen. You know when your kid's resenting the ministry? And Paul's saying, look, shouldn't our basic needs be taken care of? Shouldn't I be able to take a wife? Oh, you know, I'm a pastor, so I can't get married. I can't afford it, right? I'd love to marry you, but, you know, I'm in the ministry, and I make $1.50 a month, so, you know what I mean? And the reality is that should not happen. That's, the way, that's not God's heart for those who serve in the ministry. The Bible says those who serve in ministry are worthy of double honor, and we should honor them and encourage them and bless them. And, and I, I hesitate to say it, I'll say it because I'm leaving and you can't do anything for me, but October is Pastor Appreciation Month. Those of you who don't know, we have six other pastors here besides myself. I would encourage you, if there's those who are ministering to you, just drop them a note. Drop a card in the mail and encourage them. I send them off to my pastors every year. Why? Because I, I, it encourages them that you're blessing them. I'm leaving for India, so I'll be out of here, okay? And I don't get back till November, so you can't do it, all right? So I, I, and I hesitate to say it, but I want to encourage that we have those here who love you guys and serve you. Now, it says here that he, they, you can take, and look, notice here, a believing wife. If he's going to take a wife, she better be a believer, amen? She better be walking with God. And he says, can I take a believing wife and shouldn't, you know, shouldn't her needs and my needs also be taken care of? Now, watch this here. It says here, look what it says. As do other apostles, the brothers of the, uh, of the Lord and Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. Peter had a wife. Peter had a mother-in-law. We know that. So we know he had a wife because Jesus healed his, his uh, mother-in-law, right? But that kind of squashes the whole thing of Peter being the first pope, doesn't it? Because the pope has to be celibate. So that doesn't work out too well, does it? Peter's not the first pope. Amen? And we don't need popes. We got Jesus. Amen? And so I just want to make that clear. Sometimes people just, they're so indoctrinated with tradition, if you read the Bible, it'll wipe all that stuff out. 
And so Peter had a wife, he brought his wife with him, and they were cared for by the churches that they ministered to, verse 6. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? So all the other apostles were being supported, and Paul and Barnabas were not. The other apostles were receiving support, but Paul and Barnabas were choosing to work and to support themselves. Now, they were doing it because they didn't want to stumble anybody. I want to share a personal testimony with you guys. Most of you know, the first 12 years I was in ministry, I worked full-time. And I have to confess to you that it was a joy to me to be able to, in the midst of you know, people being concerned about money and things like that, when people would ask me things, I'd say, the next time I get paid for ministry will be the first one. I don't get paid anything. I'm doing my job as unto the Lord, and God allows me to be in ministry, and it's a blessing. But I also believe that as a pastor, we have to be humble enough to, one, we have to be diligent enough to being willing to work and humble enough to be willing to, to, to quit working if that's God's plan. One day I was sitting in my office and the, pastors, the, uh, the assistant pastors called me on the phone to tell me it was my last day at work. Pastor Dave, today's your last day. You're quitting. I'm like, well, I don't think so. They're like, look, we've prayed about it. The church is growing. We can support your family. It's time for you to quit. And I have to confess to you openly that I struggled with it. And as I began to pray about it, God showed me I needed to do it because my heart should be to do whatever will bless the church the most. If it's me working full time so there's no burden to to take care of my family and it's not going to stumble somebody, then I need to do that. And if it's God's highest that it's time for me to quit so I have more time to minister to you guys, then I need to do that. And that's Paul's heart here. As he says, you know what, are we the only ones that, that, have, that can't refrain from working? Are we the only ones, just Barnabas and I? Verse 7. Whoever goes toward his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Now this is just plain logic. How many guys go into the military and bring a ship with them? Right? You bring in your own guns? Hey, look... If a guy's in the military and he's laying down his life, then we should pay taxes to get him the equipment he needs so that he might defend us. Amen? I think that's the least we can do. Some guy's laying down his life. We need to pay him. We need to support him. We need to pray for him. We need to do everything we can. Well, doesn't that principle sound a lot like a pastor? If someone's laying down his life to serve full-time in ministry, is walking away from, you know, making a lot more money in the world and really feels called by God to do this full-time, then just like paying taxes for the military, we too should give of our tithes and offerings that they might be supported so that they might minister to us. Amen? That's what he's talking about here. Then he says, the one who has a vineyard, does he not eat of his fruit? One who plants the seed and waters the field... Should he be forbidden from eating from the fruit that he planted in the ground himself? Then he says, or the, or the uh, flock, does, or the one who tends the flock does not drink the milk of the flock? So a shepherd who feeds the flock and cares for the flock, should he be ministered to by the flock? Isn't it interesting that you've got a, a picture of military, one who lays down his life in service to others. You've got a vineyard, right? What does a pastor do? He's planting the seed of God's word. He's watering the seed of God's Word, and if he's being faithful to that, then it's producing fruit. Again, a picture, I believe, of the pastor. And then a shepherd, is that not also a picture of a pastor? 
Pastors are referred to as shepherds several times in the Bible because they shepherd the flock. They defend the flock from wolves that would come in. They minister to them. They bring them to the green grass so they can be fed. And these are the analogies that he uses, just saying, hey, it's common sense that a shepherd, that a farmer is fed from the produce of his work. So too should be those in ministry. Verse 8. Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? So it's not just logic, and it's not just Paul's opinion, but the Bible says so. Look at the next verse. Verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. It is oxen. Is it oxen that God's concerned about? What's he talking about? It's a quote from Deuteronomy 25. And he says, now you got an ox, right? And he's treading out the grain. And while he's doing this, you know, some of the ears of corn and grain's falling to the ground. And no doubt as he's plowing and toiling, he's going to get hungry. And shouldn't that ox be able to put his neck down and eat from some of the produce of what he's working to do? How cruel would it be to have him working and producing food and then put a muzzle on him so that he's unable to eat? But then the rest of the verse he says, is it oxen God is concerned about? He's not talking about oxen. Oxen can't read. They don't know this, right? They're not reading this going, oh, see, they're not supposed to put a muzzle on me. That's not what he's talking about. It's not oxen he's concerned about. It's those who are serving in ministry, that we should take care of them. And again, this is a hard subject for some people because there are so many abuses. There's so many people that going, you know, they're, they're looking for a way to fleece people. And it breaks my heart, and don't worry, God will take care of them. Amen? Pray for their salvation, and if not, boy, I don't want to be anywhere near you on Judgment Day, okay? I don't even want to catch the, the, you know, the sparks that fly off you when the lightning hits. I don't want to be near you. But here's the reality that God's desire, just because it's abused by some, then people respond and go in the opposite direction, and they turn pastors into these guys who are living below the poverty level, and neither one of those is right. He shouldn't be some guy who's really wealthy, and he shouldn't be somebody who's scraping along to eat. He should just live like the people in the church, be able to minister to his kids, be able to minister to his wife and his family. And he says there that, you know, again, that the oxen should be able to eat of that which he has produced. Now, it's interesting that Paul had plowed the soil in Corinth. He had planted the seed in Corinth. Should he not enjoy the fruits of the harvest that was coming up in Corinth? Verse 10. Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, it is written that he who plows shall plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be our partaker of this hope. Written as an illustration for us, plows in hope means that he has expectation that if he's just faithful to do what God has called him to do, that God will provide for him through that ministry. As he's faithful, God will provide for him. And he should just plow in hope and trust in God. Verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things for you, it is a great thing if we reap your material things. Again, those who minister to us spiritually, we are to minister back to them materially. Here's the reality, you guys. Just to make it as simple as possible. I am blessed to be able to spend 50 to 60 hours a week studying the Bible because you're faithful to give. If you didn't give, I couldn't study. And if I couldn't study, I wouldn't be able to teach you the way that God's called me to. So you're being obedient so that I can be obedient. Does that make sense? That's the body of Christ. Because you're obedient, I can be. 
if I was working full time, it would be very difficult for me to spend as much, it would be impossible for me to spend as much time in the Word or, as, or for our assistant pastors to spend as much time counseling people and loving on you guys and, and getting together and praying for you throughout the week. It would be impossible. So because you're obedient, we're allowed to be. And, that, and you know what? As we continue to minister to you, you can continue to minister right back to us. That's the way the body of Christ is supposed to function. Verse 12, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. The interesting part is, according to this verse, they were giving to other people in ministry, the church in Corinth, but they, re they refused to give to Paul. They were giving to others, but they wouldn't give to the very guy who had planted their church. You know why? They didn't like what he had to say. By the way, your tithe check should not be based on whether or not you like the message on Sunday. Right? You know, he was kind of, you know, I, I didn't like, what, that, that was kind of rough. I, you know what? I, I, I'm going to go to Sears today or something. I'm, not, I'm just not doing it, right? I'm going to buy a new microwave. I mean, I, I, that's some, right? And the reality is, if we don't like what we hear, we can withhold. And the sad part is, there are denominations, literally. I have a friend who's an assistant pastor at a church here in town who a bunch of the tithers came together and said, because they knocked a wall down to have more room in the sanctuary, they were mad. And they said, if you don't put that wall back up, we're going to stop tithing. And he said, they make up about 40% of all the money that comes into the church. I said, boy, they're lucky I'm not the pastor. I'd say, don't ever tithe again. That's okay. Because where God guides, God provides. Amen? And we don't have to cajole people. And, we don't have, you know, and, I'm not, and if you come up and tell me, if you stop teaching the Bible, I'll give you $500 million. Keep the money. We're not, you know, the Pope is not for sale, amen? The Word of God is going to be taught, and God is going to be faithful to provide. And you know what? It's not a popularity contest. And these guys didn't like what Paul had to say, so they were supporting other people, but they refused to support Paul because some of the stuff he said offended them. You know what? Praise God for men like Paul who were more worried about being obedient to God than being popular with men. Amen? And that should be our call as Christians. Always do it in love, never self-righteously, never in arrogance, but don't water it down to be a man-pleaser. Be faithful and obedient to what God has called you to do. It was Paul they struggled with, and again, they refused to give because they were worried or didn't like some of the things that he said. But look what it says in the second half of that verse. Nevertheless, we have not used this right but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. You know what? It cost Paul something to continue to work. Paul worked and made tents, and it was hard work. It was manual labor that the Greeks looked down upon. The people in Corinth would look down upon the job that he had. And Paul said, I'm going to endure, and I'm going to be faithful because I don't want to stumble even one person by taking a dime from the church. I love Paul's heart. Paul wants to run the race. And he wants to run the race and finish well and run the race where the finish line's heaven. And he's not worried about being popular with men, but being faithful to Almighty God. Verse 13, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? You know that we know this from the Old Testament, those who've been coming on Wednesday night, that when they made sacrifices, a portion went to the priest to provide for his daily needs. And he's just reminding them that, again, it's not Paul's opinion, it's the Word of God. 
do not muzzle the ox, and the priest is provided for from that which is given in sacrifice. Verse 14, even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Matthew 10.10, this is the verse that spoke to me when my wife and I ended up selling our house. Matthew 10.10 says, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper nor your money bag nor belt nor bag for your journey nor two tunics nor sandals nor staffs for a worker is worthy of his food. You know what? God was ministering to me as I was studying late one night that it was time for us to sell our house so that when we did go full time at some point we'd be able to. And praise God that God just made it really clear to me, get rid of your house. And so I remember coming home early one morning after studying all night on a Sunday morning and mentioning it to my wife, and I said, Lord, I'll know it's you because I know that this is her dream house, and if she is willing to, Lord, I'll know it's your hand. And I said, you know, babe, I've been praying about it. I think we ought to just sell the house and go rent a place or buy a mobile home or something. She didn't blink. Let's do it. Oh, praise the Lord. We, that day, that day, we got home from church. We went out and we found a mobile home we liked, and we bought it. And then I called somebody who goes to our church, and he came over to our house and bought our house. In one day. Never went on the market. Talk about the hand of God, right? I mean, I mentioned it to my wife at 8.30. We buy a mobile home at 1 and sell our house at 5. That's pretty sweet. That's the hand of God. But what was happening was God was, tell, was encouraging me that it was time to let go of the world for me. And I'm not saying owning a house is wrong. I think it's a good investment and it's being a good steward of God's money. But for my family, God was telling me that it was time to get rid of that huge house payment and go find something we could pay cash for so we could live in a much lower level and be able to do ministry full time if that's what God called us to do. And what, he's tell, what he told the, the apostles is the same thing. Don't take a money bag with you. Don't take anything with you. You just go and be faithful and I'll take care of you. Just go and be faithful. And it takes faith to do that. And those who preach the gospel have the right to be supported by the gospel. Luke 10, 8 says, Whatever city you enter, eat such things as are set before you. Pastors are not to be demanding. They're just to be thankful for what God gives them. And, they're, and you know what? I take this to heart. I've been to Russia seven times, and I've been, I'm going to India today. And whatever food they put in front of me, I eat it with a, a smile on my face. And it's not always easy. <laughs> never forget one meal where they brought out fish heads on dry bread that had no yeast and like this large stuff it was rough but they thought they were blessing me so you know praise the lord right <laughs> it's good stuff it says simply eat that which is laid out before you right that's the pastor's heart verse 15 but i have used none of these things nor have i written these things that it should be done so for me for it would be better for me to die than anyone should make my boasting void. So he makes it really clear. He's an apostle. He's called by God. His ministry is fruitful. They're not to muzzle the ox. That God makes it clear that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So he's made it very clear that under the authority of God, they should take care of his needs. And then he turns right around and says, but I don't want you to. Why? He's demonstrating to them that though he has liberty... It's not worth it in his heart to take advantage of that liberty if it's going to stumble even one person. Where was the finish line for Paul? Heaven. And he says here, look what he says at the end of verse 15, it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. And he means boasting in the gospel. 
If my boasting in the gospel is made void because somebody finds out that I'm being paid to do it and they think my motives are that I'm just a hireling chasing down money, you know what? I'd rather die than have that happen. So you know what? I'll make tents as long as I live. So Paul, again, he's told them not to eat the meat if it's going to cause their brother to stumble. Now he's just giving them a clear example from his own life of how he did not take advantage of the liberties that God had given to him. He was a tent maker. Verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. This is more proof that this guy's a pastor. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. When people ask me, how do I know if I'm called to be a pastor? I tell them, if you can do anything else, go do it. Because if you're called, you can't do anything else. Jeremiah, there was a point in his ministry, he's called the weeping prophet, where he'd been ministering for 40 years, no converts. You want to talk about rough, right? He's ministering, he's called the weeping prophet, and at one point he's in a dungeon, and he says, okay, I'm not going to preach, I'm just not going to talk about God anymore. Everybody wants to kill me, nobody's getting saved anyway, I'm in a dungeon, I quit. And then, you know what it says of Jeremiah? That it burned within his bones to preach the gospel. He could not share the love of God. Woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul said, I know what I'm called to do, and I'm going to do it. And if I have to make tents to do it, that's fine with me, because that's the calling God has placed on my life. For I do this willingly. If I do this willingly, verse 17, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with the stewardship. He's saying if I do this willingly, that means rejecting the support of men, then I have a reward. But if, if, if they've never even offered it, but I'm faithful to it, I still am called to a stewardship of the Word of God. You know, if the church is too small to support me, if, there's, if it's not even available, and I just go out and do it anyway, then I've been entrusted with a stewardship by God. And God has called me to be faithful in that calling. Verse 18. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Paul's heart was to preach without charge. He wanted to distance himself from all the money grabbers. He didn't want to do anything that would hinder the gospel or stumble a weak brother. He didn't like the emphasis on money. If, you, you know, if you've been coming here more than a week, you know we don't even pass an offering here. You ever notice that? You know why we don't do that? And again, are we called by God to give? Yes. Yes, we are. Is it an act of worship? Absolutely. How often do you hear me get up here and tell you guys you need to give? If it's in the text, that's when I tell you. Amen? We teach through the Bible, and you get it in proportion to what it's in God's Word. Amen? But I don't ever want anybody to give out of contrition. I don't want them to give because they feel like somebody twisted their arm behind their back. Can I tell you that we've never passed an offering in this church and we never will and you know that God has always provided. And you know what? Guess who gets the glory? He does. Amen? It wasn't because we had pack a few Tuesday or I got up here and whipped you all up, put a thermometer on the wall and we got it, you know, right? <laughs> got matching donations this week, right? No. You know, these guys, if we, don't, if we don't get the money by Friday, we're going to go off the air. I always say the same thing, go off the air. Because where God guides, God provides, amen? And you don't have to beat people up for it. You don't have to beg, you don't have to ask. Just let God do it. And it's a blessing because you get to see God's hand. So the church is called to provide for those materially that minister spiritually. Verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. 
And to, to, to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. And to those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. Paul's heart was not only that he was willing to do whatever it took not to stumble a single brother, but he also had the heart to be a servant to all mankind. And, he, and basically what we're going to see in the next few verses, he, he says, I want to do all things for all people that I might win some. Paul's heart was whatever it takes to reach people with the gospel. He wanted to build a bridge to all men. And so his heart was, I've been free and I made myself a servant to some. I made myself a servant to those I really like. I made myself a servant to those who tip me. No, he said, I made myself a servant to all. And then he says, to the Jews I became as a Jew. Paul, again, as we know, knew that he didn't have to, you know, he didn't have to fulfill the Jewish law anymore. But yet he did. He circumcised Timothy. He went through a cleansing uh, uh, ceremony. Why? Because he wanted to build a bridge to minister to the Jews. But I want to make this really clear. He did not water down the message to reach them. There's a movement today that says we got to reach people, so let's water down the message so it doesn't offend. You don't water down the message. You reach out to all people, but you don't ever water down the message. Amen? It's preach the truth without compromise, reach out to all men, and we've, we've taken out of context when we start to say, well, reach out to them, and I know a real good way for them not to be offended. We won't tell them they're sinners. We won't tell them they need a Savior. We won't, you know, we'll, 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 just, we'll all get in a circle and just sing kumbaya, right? I don't know, right? I mean, but we're just going to make it something other than it really is so no one's offended. You know what? If I go to a church and I'm not convicted, I need to find another church. Because when God's word is preached, guess what? I'm going to be convicted, amen? And do you know that conviction is a good thing? Because conviction is God's ownership papers on your heart that he loves you and he's conforming you more and more into his image. So conviction is not something to run from. It's something to rejoice over because God is working on your heart. He also became a Gentile to the Gentiles. He didn't force the law upon them. He didn't go into the Gentiles and say, okay, you guys got to all be circumcised now. Okay, you got to all keep the law. No, he just ministered to them right where they were. Verse 22. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. He didn't water it down, but he sought to find, com found, find common ground. Can I encourage you, if you're witnessing to people, start with what you have in common. You know, I had a Catholic guy sitting next to me for a couple years in San Jose, and he was real devout. And I just started, I said, well, oh, so you're Catholic. So then you believe that Jesus Christ is God? He said, absolutely. You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross? Without question. You believe that he rose from the dead? No doubt about it. Great. Let's start there. And just loved on the guy and encouraged him. Before you know it, he started coming to our Bible study. And after some time, I was able to sit down with him and really talk to him about what sal salvation doesn't come through the Catholic Church or any other church. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Amen. And you know what? When his mom died, he had me do the funeral instead of the Catholic priest, which was huge for a guy who was so devout. But what if I had got up and said, man, you guys are a bunch of idol worshipers praying to Mary over there. How would that have worked out? Not real good. So what do we do? 
find what we have in common. If someone is involved in a cult, you know what you say? So it sounds to me like you're trying to, you, you know, you have a heart to know the truth about who God is. You have a heart to know the truth? So do I. We should sit down and talk sometime. You know, as opposed to attacking them. Joseph Smith, man, he saw an Italian angel out and like, oh, you believe that? Right? No, it, no, that's not effective. Meet people where they're at. Find that common ground, but never water down the gospel. Verse 24, do you not know that those who run a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. You know what? I love this. I love sports analogies because I love sports. But Paul uses a lot of them. But understand in Corinth, they had a thing called the Isthmus Games that was second only to the Olympics. And he said, you know, all run the race. And those who run, they run to win the prize. And you know what? He compares Christians to athletes because they both run to win. They both train to win. They both desire to win. They both follow the rules to win. The only difference is the prize they're chasing. That's the only difference. And look at verse 25. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. That means he's under control, that he has self-restraint, that he exercises it, that he's diligent. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable one. You know, the amazing part is what Paul's saying here is, you know, there's those who spend an entire year training so they can win a laurel wreath and have it put on their head that'll die in a couple of days. Can you imagine training 12 hours a day for a year, and then you win, and they put a dead plant on your head, right? All right, I won. Great, dead plant, right? You know what we're, what our prize is? We're pressing on to the upper calling in Christ Jesus, amen? And the prize that we have is heaven to come. And what a blessing to know that our reward will not perish. It will not die. It will not fade. And so we are to run the race and run it with the desire to win it. Last couple verses. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. One who beats the air, one who fights in vain, one who's fighting something that is of no value. Too many people today are pursuing something that is of no value. They're pursuing something that is so important to them that is dead and meaningless. But we don't pursue that which is fading. Verse 27, But I discipline my body, and I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Talking about bringing it into subjection there. You know, when we were born again, before you were born again, your flesh was on top and in charge. And when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we become new creations in Him, and now the Spirit of the living God dwells on the throne of our life. And now we're not subject to the flesh, but the flesh is subject to the Spirit. Now, we still struggle with our flesh sometimes, and we still will turn away and follow after the, the desires of our flesh, but it's no longer the flesh that's on the throne. And he says, no longer am I bound to that. I discipline my body, and I bring it into subjection. Can I encourage you with something in closing? If you don't fast, can I encourage you to do that? Jesus didn't say if you fast. He said when you fast. Because you know what fasting is? It's putting our flesh in subjection. It's teaching us to say no to our fleshly desires sometimes. I believe that as we fast, it teaches us when temptation even comes to be able to say no. My body's not in charge. My spirit is. Amen? Our body wants to be, right? It wants to be in charge. It wants to be fed. It wants to be cared for. It wants to have pleasure. 
But the Lord desires that we, our, our body would be in submission to us, not the other way around. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself might be disqualified. Again, if we do not bring our body into subjection, we will disqualify ourselves from ministry. We'll be hypocrites to the world. They'll see the way we live our lives and they'll think there's nothing different. And again, as, as new creations in Christ, we are different. We're called to be different. Our spirit is governed by God, no longer governed by our will. So in conclusion, running the race to win. Being willing to give up anything that might stumble another. What are you willing to give up that might stumble another? If, if you found out that watching your favorite TV program was stumbling somebody, would you get rid of it? If you found out that your, one of your favorite hobbies stumbled somebody, would you get rid of it? If your prize is heaven, if your goal is heaven, if the finish line is heaven, if your passion is to see the unbelievers come to a saving knowledge of Christ, then nothing is too valuable to give up to minister to somebody else. Amen? But it becomes an idol when we won't give it up, when we say it's too important to us. Again, reach the lost, not try to be as comfortable as you can be. All things to all meant that we might win some. Bridging the gap, reaching out to those, find a common ground, but don't water down the gospel. And lastly, pursue that which will outlast this life. Have an eternal focus. Have your body it's subject to your spirit, not the other way around. Your body should not be in charge. Your spirit should be. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for this example of not taking advantage of, quote, liberties that's been given to us, Lord. But, but, Father, I love Paul's heart. And may we learn from it that though he had the authority and though he had the liberty to, to receive support, he wouldn't do it because he knew that there would be those who would be stumbled. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't walk around just talking about what we deserve and what liberties we should have. But, Lord, we should live our lives circumspectly looking around and how we can minister to others and how we can live lives that don't stumble others but encourage others and lord i do pray that you'd help us to bridge the gap to a lost and dying world lord that we look at the lost and we'd see them through your eyes that our heart would break for unbelievers lord that we would love them the way that you love them father that we would reach out to them with hearts that are broken before you lord i pray that we would never just allow the fact that people around us don't know the Lord just to grow common in our hearts. But Father, give us a burden for the lost. And then Lord, I also pray that just as Paul, Paul's heart was to run the race and to put his body in subjection, I pray we too can deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow you. Not follow the will of our flesh, but Lord, to follow the leading of your spirit. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. You're a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... God bless you guys. Pastor Ken's going to lead you guys in preparation for communion. I would covet your prayers. I've got a plane to catch. So God bless you guys. I love you guys. I'll see you in two weeks. All right? God bless you. Well, as we come to the table this morning, those of you that...